Hi, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 4th of March, 2021 Hong Kong Stories Podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. Some moments in your life are so iconic, so unbelievable, that you may wonder later on if it was all a dream or not. Good or bad, positive or negative, these experiences shape our lives and stay with us long after the time has passed. As we walk the streets of Hong Kong under the drizzly sky this week, we'll be thinking of different places and other circumstances while we listen to Vincent's story about a special night in faraway Jamaica. After Vincent's story, we'll re-listen to a story from Katie about an adventure that did not exactly go as planned. Before we get to today's stories, though, a huge and warm hello goes out to our loyal Hong Kong listeners. Hang in there, Hong Kong. We are listening. Hellos go out to our overseas listeners as well. This week, especially to listeners in Zurich in Canada, Wuppertal in Germany, and Yuan Lin in Taiwan. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. We do have good news. The venue is booked and as long as everything stays smooth, we'll be on stage at the Fringe Club on the 1st of April to perform our first live show for 2021. Tickets will be on sale soon, but not quite yet. We will be keeping to strict mask wearing and social distancing, so please be patient with us. Tickets will be on sale by the end of next week on Ticket Lab. If you'd like to know more, go to hongkongstories.com. Also, to let you know, we're starting to host live workshops again. These will be posted up on Meetup under Hong Kong Stories. There's a link that you can follow to find them on the website hongkongstories.com. With gathering restrictions, space fills up fast, so do not hesitate. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than drama. It's better than comedy. It's real life. And now with the story from the last show of 2020, here is Vincent. I remember when I was 10 years old, the first time I heard rock and roll music, I was at my uncle's house and I listened to Little Richard playing Tutti Frutti. Ah, I was, I was totally blown away. Then at the age of 17, at the Kensington Club in Newport, in the town where I lived, there was a group called Amen Corner. I went to see them live music. Oh, it was so good. And then a few days later, they were on top of the pops. I mean, if you're British, you'll understand that. Okay, <laughs> so they were on top of the pops. And uh, totally, totally blown away. In my early 20s, I find myself living in London. People might think London is a great place to live. I was living in the east end of London. I was working as a physics teacher, teaching semi-literate people physics, which wasn't very easy. Um, and the East End of London at that time, and we're talking about 1972, 1973, was run down. 
It was dirty, it was smelly, it was crowded. There were no open spaces. You had all of the sort of problems with London without any of the advantages. So you had the sort of west end of London that had everything, and then us poor people in the east end of London, we had nothing. But then I saw an advert in the Times Educational for a physics teacher. So this one fits. And this job is in a boys' boarding school. Hmm, not so sure. But this job is in Jamaica, in the, in the Caribbean. So I applied for the job. <laughs> of course. I've got, I've got friends that I grew up with in Newport that come from Jamaica, and they told me about the beautiful sands, the laid-back lifestyle, the fantastic music, ska music, rock steady, reggae. I mean, for me, it seems like a dream. And two weeks later, I get the job. So I'm off to Jamaica. But once I got the job, I started getting stories coming back from the family. And the family was saying, but Jamaica is a really dangerous place. So luckily, I've got cousins all over the world. So I had a cousin that was in Jamaica. She was living in Montego Bay. So I got in touch with her. I said, look, I've got a job. What do you think? She said, come on over. You're going to love it. Where you're living is going to be in a town called Mandeville, which is up in the hills. It's a small town. It's an old garrison town. It's an old British Army garrison. And it's super calm. It's out in the countryside. Of course, there's trouble in, in Jamaica, but that's all in Kingston, in the ghettos, in the places like like Trenchtown. So I arrive in Jamaica. Uh, they give me a really nice apartment. And the views from the apartment, then I could see just beautiful countryside. It was super clean. I could see bananas growing. I could see papaya growing. I could see oranges. I could see even avocados growing on the trees. It was, yeah, it was really good. I meet one of the students and of course my passion for music. And I say, well, what kind of music do you listen to? He looked at me, said, reggae. Ah, who do you listen to? Who's, who's good in Jamaica? He said, Bob Marley. I said, who's Bob Marley? He, he looked at me like I was crazy, because in his eyes, I was crazy. He said, Bob Marley, he said, he's the best. So the next weekend, I go to the record shop, I go into the record shop, I say, please, can you play me some Bob Marley? The guy takes out the LP, it was called Catch a Fire. He puts on the track, it's called Concrete Jungle. I can remember it like it was yesterday, and I was just blown away. Okay, so this, this made everything uh, worth going to Jamaica for. But then, in addition to that, every weekend, we got, in fact, our friends, we had expatriate friends, they introduced us to some Jamaican people. And we used to go to a nightclub. And every weekend on, uh, we, on, the, uh, on the Saturday night, we would drink, it sounds disgusting, <laughs> 
white rum and milk. And, and this, it sounds, this, I mean, it sounds really bad, but the white rum is overproof, which means it's like 150 degrees proof. And then they sort of put the milk in to kind of soften it down a bit. And I, I remember one night I actually, uh, I thought I, I'm going to see how many of these I can, you know, I can drink. <laughs> I mean, I, I got to five and then I, I woke up the next morning and I couldn't find my car. <laughs> in fact, it took me about two hours to find the car. So I, I'd actually drunk all of this and driven the car. And Anyway, so, so basically, we've got this good community of friends that we're, you know, we're building up. And I asked one of my friends, well, where do you go to listen to live music? And he looked at me, you crazy boy? That's my best Jamaican accent, I'm sorry. <laughs> he, he said, live music in a Kingston. Live music in a Kingston. Kingston, not safe. So I translate, it's not safe. <laughs> okay, so basically we get the story that live music is out. Where we're living, live music is out. But then the next week, somebody comes in and says, Bob Marley's going to do a concert in Kingston. So I think to myself, Bob Marley, Kingston, violence. So at this time in Jamaica, this was 1975, um, basically the government, it, marijuana was going out of Jamaica and guns were coming in. So it was getting more and more dangerous. So they tried to introduce laws to, to stop people, you know, using the guns. And if you were caught with the gun, then it was, it was very serious. Anyway, we spoke amongst ourselves. The concert was called the, the Wonder Dream Concert. Wonder Dream Concert. Because not only was Bob Marley going to play, there was a guy called Stevie Wonder who was going to be playing as well. And I found it very funny, but Stevie Wonder was the top of the bill. Bob Marley was just his support. Anyway, there's this fantastic concert that's going to go on. We talk amongst ourselves, and of course, we decide to go. So we're going to go to Kingston, and two of my friends, uh, they organize a trip. So basically, they decide we're going to go to Kingston, but we're going to go on the back of a market truck. Now, what's a market truck? A market truck is where all the country people in Jamaica put all of their produce, all of the things that they've grown, and they take it to the market. And usually you see these things driving around with all the produce on the back, and sometimes there can even be chickens and, and pigs on the top as well. We decide to do this. I don't know why they decided it, but they decided so the day of the concert arrives, we put a freezer on the, back of the, on the back of the truck, we fill it full of ice, then we put in the beer. Then we put some sofas on the side of, of the truck and we lash them to the side of the truck so we can go down into Kingston. So we're winding down into Kingston now in this, in this big country truck. Uh, as we went through the village, everybody was shouting at us and cheering at us. Hey, white man! <laughs> it, was, it, was, 
It was totally incredible. We got down to the concert. Everything passed, you know, really smoothly. We went into the concert. The, the seats were all laid out. Uh, all of the acts came on. First with the supporting acts, which warmed the crowd up. Uh, and at the same time, as the crowd was getting warmed up, we were in Jamaica. So there was sort of clouds sort of billowing across the arena as well. Okay, I don't have to tell you what it was, but there were sort of clouds billowing across. So then Bob, Bob comes on. He comes on with Peter Tosh. He comes on with Bunny Livingstone. He comes on with the I-3s. He sings. It's a fantastic story. You know, it's a fantastic. All of his hits, he plays them all. And I remember particularly he finished the set with No Woman, No Cry. And it was just, yeah, it was awesome. Then Stevie Wonder came on, and, and again, Stevie Wonder was one of my boyhood heroes from Tamla Motown, and he did an amazing set, My Sherry Amour, uh, You Are the Sunshine of My Life. And then he invited Bob onto the stage with him. So the two of them came on the stage, and they sang I, I Shot the Sheriff and Superstition. So uh, everything was, I mean, it was glorious, it, and it passed off without any problem whatsoever. So we get back to the truck, and by this time I'm tired out. You know, the music's still going in my head, and I just collapse on the sofa and go to sleep. <sighs> what a day. But then I wake up about, I don't know, maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes later, and there's a big argument going on. And it's in Patois. And basically, the people are saying, in a safe, in a safe, in a safe with a white man, so I understand it's not safe. It's not safe in a trench town. So then I understand we're lost and we're going towards trench town. And there's a big argument going on and it's serious. Then a police car arrives. The police car arrives and, and the, the, the policemen get out and say, well, what's going on? They look at this. We're in the back of a country truck. Eight white people, six of our Jamaican friends in the back of a truck. They, what's going on? So we said, we went to see Bob Marley. So this was like, to them, it was like, oh, my God. You know, these are drug addicts or something. <laughs> so they said, okay, you need to show us some identity. You need to show us some, some proof of who you are and empty out your pockets. Now, my friend Mike actually sort of withdrew and went towards the back of the truck. And he left all of us sort of white people more exposed to the police. So we turned out our pockets, we showed their identity, and, and everything was okay. Then they started working through uh, our Jamaican friends, and they got through the Jamaican friends, and the only person that was left was Mike. And Mike was at the back of the truck and, and looking really quite sort of worried. And for some unknown reason, and I'm not sure why, they said, look, okay, we finished. You're going to turn the truck around, you're going to follow us, and we'll take you out of Kingston. So, I mean, my heart started to calm down a bit. Everything started to relax. We get to the edge of Kingston. As we get to the edge of Kingston, the police peel off. So we just pull into, uh, we pull into a bar for a break. We need something to drink. We need something to sort of calm down, use the toilets. And I go over to Mike, and Mike is looking really sort of, 
he's looking totally blitzed. And I say to Mike, Mike, it's okay. We're, we're okay now. The police have gone. We're out of Trenchtown. Everything is okay. He said to me, he looked at me, and, and in a deep voice he sort of said, yeah, we're okay now. He said, but we nearly went to prison back there. So I looked at him, I said, what? Prison? He said, yeah, yeah, we nearly went to prison. I said, I don't understand. He said, I'm a taxi driver, and often in the taxi I have problems with my clients, and that's why I carry a gun. And he looked at me without smiling and said, but we're okay now. We used to meet after that. We used to meet quite regularly on the weekends and reminisce about our Kingston, about our Kingston adventure. We would always drink our white rum and milk. And quite often, Bob would be playing on the sound system. One good thing about music, when it hits you, you feel no pain. Thank you. Music does indeed soothe us in troubled times. Thanks to Vincent for telling us that story. What do you turn to when you're upset or unhappy? Is there music that's made an impact in your life? How has it changed you and what have you done differently because of it? If you have a story that you're bursting to tell, come along to a free workshop. You can find details on Meetup or links to the workshop at hongkongstories.com. And now with the story about another far-off time and place, here is Katie. We would have never survived if it weren't for Batman. But then again, he was the one that got us into this mess. It was 2011. I was living in the United States, and my husband Blake had gotten me the birthday gift of a lifetime. A trip to Kentucky. For the fried chicken? Yes. But also for one of America's most noteworthy attractions, Mammoth Cave. That is because five years prior, I had discovered my love of spelunking. That's caving, you dirty Brits. There's something about spelunking that I just loved. It was, you know, each time I would go into a cave, the deeper in I would get, the more of an adrenaline rush it was. I loved the darkness. I loved the quiet. I loved the danger. I loved spelunking. And so when we arrived in Kentucky after getting the fried chicken, we went to the official Mammoth Cave Park. And as we walked from the very crowded car park, I very excitedly looked down at my adventure pants, you know, the ones with all those pockets and those little zip-off pant legs. And I really excitedly zipped and unzipped my pant legs like, ooh. And I was so excited for the darkness, and I was excited to get dirty, and I was excited to really get into the cave and explore. However, 
That excitement was very short-lived when we arrived to a very crowded cave. All of the um, entryway was paved, and the cave was lit up really brightly, and there was like cordoned off areas, so you could kind of see it, but you couldn't really explore it. I didn't get my darkness. I didn't get my quiet. I didn't get any danger, and my adventure pants stayed clean. I walked back to the car parked, married, sadly, zipping and unzipping my adventure pants. Blake, knowing that this was my dream birthday gift, quickly got on his phone and tried to look up something that was a little bit better. Oh, look, private three-hour tour. Experience real Kentucky spelunking. This looks legit. I very excitedly zipped up my adventure pants, and we signed up for the next morning. When we arrived... This car park, empty. No sign. Are we in the right place? Suddenly, a very tall, lanky, wiry man in his 20s came out to the car park and waved us. Oh, okay. My name is Barnaby, but you can call me Batman. (laughs) Blake and I gave each other this look. Barn, Batman brought us into a very small makeshift office and described for us what the cave tour would be like. He then gave us additional adventure clothes, a helmet with a headlamp, a little bag to carry our water, and a rope system so that we could go down these tight shafts. He also mentioned in a very hurried voice, oh, if you need to use the toilet, go now. Uh, because it's a federal offense to pee in a cave, and as Batman, I must uphold the law. (laughs) Noticing he was in quite a hurry, I said, it's only three hours, I'm good. We put on our hard hats, and we started to army crawl through this tight, cramped entrance. We had to turn on our headlamps, And as we crawled through the thick mud, all we could see was what was in front of us. It had oh, and then as I was crawling, my adventure pant opened up a little bit, and there was a rock, and it scratched my knee, and my knee started to bleed. And it was only two minutes in, and I got darkness and danger, but quiet was quickly interrupted when Batman, we learned why his name was Batman, shines a light. These are the silver-haired bats. You can tell because they have silver hair. (laughs) Okay, army crawled a little bit further into the cave. These are the flat-nosed bats. They're different. Because they have flat noses. (laughs) Okay, it wasn't long before we realized Batman was not an expert on caves. (laughs) He was an expert on bats who just happened to live in caves. So he put up with the cave in order to see these precious bats. 
He was obsessed with them. And in two and a half hours, all we heard was bat this and bat that. The deeper into the cave we went, the more we knew about bats. Like, for example, did you know there's over a thousand kinds of bats? And did you know that a bat can eat its weight in insects using echolocation? <laughs> we do. It was getting really exhausting listening to all this bat talk. So I chugged my water knowing I only had about 30 minutes until the next toilet. But soon there was more and more and more stories about bats. And my bladder started to indicate that it had been over a half hour. It started to feel full as if it had been maybe over an hour. Barnaby, um, are we going to be going back soon? I actually really have to use the toilet. You can call me Batman. Um, not exactly. What do you mean, not exactly? Okay, well, we were supposed to take a turn at the silver-haired bats, but there was only flat-nosed bats. And so, basically, I've been looking for the, silver no the silver-haired bats for about an hour. So we're lost. You mean we're lost? You didn't think to tell us we were lost? Blake starts to get angry. He was just very politely putting up with Batman's shit this whole time. And now that we were lost, he had had it. Um, yeah, we're lost. But I have an idea. I think I kind of know where the bats are. So you guys stay here and I'll just crawl up ahead and find the bats. And then once I find them, I'll come back and get you. But you're going to have to turn off your headlamps because um, you're going to need the batteries because I don't really know how long this is going to take. Before we could even object, Batman starts army crawling away from us to search for his precious silver-haired bats. We did what he said, and we turned off our lights. Now we're sitting in the warm mud and it's completely dark, and we're watching Batman's headlamp go further and further away. It's getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until it's a pinprick of light. Then he turns the corner, and it's pitch black. I mean, I wanted darkness, didn't I? Now that Batman's gone... It's silent. No bat talk. I could hear my pulse and my ears. I mean, I wanted quiet, didn't I? And then I start remembering, we didn't tell anyone that we were going on this private cave tour. Everyone thought we were at the major mammoth cave. We didn't have phones. We didn't have food. We hardly had any water. And we had a tour guide that was more interested in bats than the cave. I wanted danger. Didn't I? Oh, my God. This is how we die. Oh, my God. I can't believe this. Blake panics. I mean, this guy's so fucking crazy with these bats, right? Like, he could kill us, right? Like, this could be part of his thing. Like, there's no way we're going to get out of this cave alive. He's going to find the bats, and he's going to forget completely about us. I quickly remember Blake never really enjoyed caving as much as I did. <laughs> so he's panicked. And I was trying really hard to stay calm. 
But I was quickly distracted by an urgency to pee. (laughs) It had now been over five hours in the cave and my bladder was completely full. I really have to pee, but I don't want to pee in the cave because it's a federal offense. Are you serious? He just left us to die. And you worried about peeing in the cave? Just go. He's never coming back unless you want to keep the pee in a bottle and we can drink it later when he never returns for us. So Blake realized he had to go too. So we army crawled to different areas of the cave and we both started to go. And I felt instant relief as soon as I started to pee. But that relief was shortly lived when I started to see a pinprick of light starting to come back towards me. And I I don't know about you, but like once I start going, like I can't stop because I tried. And I was like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, federal offense, federal offense, federal offense. And so (laughs) the light's getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And finally it lits up the whole cavern. And just in time, I pull up my adventure pants and zip them and I'm ready to go crawl back over. Okay. I found the silver-haired pets. Follow me. I know which way to go. So we start armor crawling out. Oh, be careful. It's a little muddy here. (laughs) (laughs) The way out was through my pee puddle. (laughs) As I crawled out, I looked down at my adventure pants. Oh, they got dirty all right. They were filled with mud, a little blood. A lot of pee. But it was the best birthday ever. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to today's stories brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. The music for this podcast was written and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell. Even my cat, who is right now outside the door complaining that I won't let her in to help me podcast. Have a good day, everybody. Take care. <laughs>